Top U.S. health experts warn that up to 200,000 Americans could die from coronavirus. The president thinks that the elevation of Seoul, South Korea is really its population. And our Lord and Savior Bernie Sanders may be betting on a resurgence in popularity of his Medicare for All platform in the wake of the COVID-19 outbreak. We'll break it all down with our friend Susanna Luthi, a healthcare reporter at Politico, this week on the Amateur Hour podcast. Welcome to the Amateur Hour podcast. Today, we are going to talk with our friend Susanna Luthi, who is a healthcare reporter for Politico, and we're going to talk about some things that are going on with COVID-19 and the way in which it might be affecting healthcare in America. Um, and we're also going to kind of talk about Bernie and whether or not uh, he is still Jesus or whether uh, his his celestial calling is, is fading once and for all. So, I just read that uh, we've had 23,000 new cases in the United States today. It's a lot of cases. Um, as of this morning, it was at 160,000 uh, with over 3,000 deaths. And so now we've sort of surpassed the 9-11 death toll today. And if you watch the press conference this afternoon, and again, this is Tuesday that we're recording this, although you will not listen to it until Wednesday probably. Um, if you watch the press conference this afternoon, uh, everyone's sort of talking about 100,000 to 200,000 deaths. And we can talk a little bit later, maybe if we want, about whether or not that actually makes any sense. Um, but that is a lot of a lot of dead people in America. Um, so despite the ratings, uh, it's looking pretty gnarly. So we still have a primary election happening, um, although it seems kind of like years ago now that we cared about that, even though really it was only a few weeks. Um, Doesn't I, it? Yeah. How long ago was it, Brandon, that uh, Super Tuesday happened? Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I, I don't even know anymore, <laughs> to be honest. How many Scaramucci's ago was Super Tuesday? Uh, well, let's see. A Scaramucci is a, is a sum of about, about nine days, I believe. So nine times, let's say, you know, four, you know, it, give it a month, a month, or, a month-ish, plus or minus. It's like a, uh, it, it equals three Avenatti's. <laughs> I believe Avenatti equals uh, 30 years of life at this point, but I'm not sure. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Um, even though we've kind of gotten away, I think, from talking about the the primary debate, it still seems to be super relevant um, in the sense that healthcare is kind of uh, at the forefront of most of our minds, I'd imagine, since I don't know about you guys, but I am sort of terrified by COVID, even though I, I would like to think that I'm in good enough shape and still young enough to avoid the the worst consequences. That doesn't seem to... Um, I don't know. It doesn't give me much comfort. I don't know about you guys. One thing I will say about COVID that I have to, um, I was talking to a friend about this and I think our level of comfort with it is how willing we would be to, or how worried we are that our parents could be exposed. And that to me just tells me how worried I am about it. Yeah, absolutely. How are your parents doing? I know your parents. Um, how are they doing? They're doing well. They actually um, began self-isolating a week before the governor's orders. Um, thanks to Dr. Fauci. I sent them some very scary Dr. Fauci quotes. Um, very beginning of the month or maybe even in February and they locked themselves in. I was actually talking with my dad last night about this in relation to other sort of uh, nation shattering or, or nation altering uh, 
you know, moments in, in my lifetime. And the only, only other two that, that came to mind for me were, were September 11th and um, the 2008, you know, mortgage crisis. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's a big open question of how the, how the world's going to be different or how America is going to be different after, you know, we get through this, will it fundamentally alter the way we work, the way we communicate with each other on a, on a daily basis, our level of comfort, you know, of physical comfort around each other, um, you know, all those sort of things, even stuff is as, as simple as like, uh, like permissive permissiveness, like, you know, do you have to ask permission to shake somebody's hand instead of just, you know, extending your hand, you know, out of benevolence? Well, and in some ways it does almost feel like it's a combination of those two things, right? I mean, almost literally, you know, 9-11 and, and the mortgage crisis, mm-hmm. it is like a massive economic crisis and a massive health, you know, a fatality crisis. Except, I mean, I, I was in college or as a freshman in college for 9-11 and I, yes, I remember that day very, very well. It was very vivid and there was some fallout afterwards. It was scary and going home from college for the first time that Christmas airport restrictions that weren't there when I left. But this is, this is creepy. Yeah. This is creepy. This well, is, you know, it's known, right? In two weeks, we'll know how, you know, whether I have it and whether I've killed people, you know, it's a different feeling. Very different. Well, how old were you on 9-11? Uh, it was two. Yes, this is the our my generation's first uh, kind of national tragedy or a real national crisis, and um, it's interesting how we're responding. At first, I don't think many in my generation took it very seriously. I think now they're getting better, but I was definitely in my friend group. I was the most uh, knowledgeable about it, and I was definitely the most. Per, the, the person who was advocating the most for uh, mitigating the spread. And I, you know, I told people either go home or stay here, do not go home and then come back. And uh, a lot of people for some reason want to do that. Yeah. And um, Walt and I were just talking about this right before we started, but uh, we just got a email from the president of the university um, where I teach and where Walt is a student um, telling people not to come back to get their stuff from the dorms, even though they sent out an email like two days ago telling people that they could come back and get their stuff from the dorms, which is, you know, another symptom of the problem of people not taking this seriously early enough. It took forever for our particular university to actually get it shit together and come up with a plan. And every day it was sort of vacillating between all of these sort of what ifs. And I think people just went home for spring break and didn't, you know, take their stuff. And now it's kind of a big mess. And I certainly don't want them all coming back from all regions of the United States to, you know, pick up their playstations. Susanna, how are things out there just sort of, you know, what is it like every day being in DC and, and, and working in the capacity that you're working? Well, it's, um, it's probably a lot like everywhere else. Cause we've been working from home. This will be our third week working from home. Yeah. Yeah, third week feels longer than that. Um, but yeah, one day, and I remember the weekend before um, Italy was getting bad. Italy was getting looking bad. It was a Sunday. And I texted two colleagues and I said, I bet this is the last week we work in the office. The next day, or similar people were saying, our editor said, if you're not comfortable coming in, don't come in. Um, for those of you who travel, commute by. By metro 
And then by Friday, we were mostly working from home and then Monday officially. So, um, and then the, my first White House briefing with the, because um, we started, the health reporters started coming in. I was at the first briefing where they took our temperatures. They did a fever check before um, we went in. And then now there's kind of a whole apparatus outside the White House before you can even go in the gate. Um, there's a tent set up and you um, take your take your fever check. And then once you're inside the briefing room, it used to be that, you know, it's very crowded. They limit how many people can go. Um, and everyone has to, they have spaced out seating um, and people are wiping everything down. Um, so that's been different, but that's pretty much the only place I've been outside the grocery store and taking walks. Um, so it's been pretty, it's, it's isolating, but one thing about covering it, um, which I think I'm, lucky a lot of people don't feel I think a lot of people feel not in control um and I you just kind of don't have the time to feel not in control because and you also are if you're chasing the story and this is the story so I don't know in a way I, I haven't had the emotional um the emotional reaction that a lot of my friends have had and I guess because I feel so connected to it and I, you know, you're caught up in it and you just don't have the time to really think about yourself too much. Do you feel like people generally feel safe in those briefings, the way that that's being handled from a health perspective? Because I know that, you know, I always look at people sitting kind of staggered or, you know, people having gloves on and taking the microphone, but still that microphone's going around, you know, like in the Rose Garden, for instance, yesterday, you know, they're handing the microphone between people and everyone on stage. Oh, were they? Yeah, I actually wasn't, I wasn't there. It's that so thrilling. I, I don't know. But I mean, um, do you think that there's, do you think that people are, do you think reporters are sort of feeling like they're, you know, like you or, or other people, do you, are you feeling like you're risking yourself or do you feel genuinely like fairly comfortable with the health precautions that are being taken? I'm, I'm comfortable with them, but it's, I mean, it's, it's tough. Every time you go somewhere, like if I take a taxi, I go down there, you know, and it's just like, every time I go to a store, I think about myself touching things that other people touch. I don't know. Like the day to day is day to day has changed. And like with, with the briefing room, for example, it's a very controlled environment. It's, it's more as the days go by. I notice all the uncontrolled things a lot more. Yeah, I someone someone posted on Twitter uh, yesterday or the day before. I may have shared it with you guys. I don't remember. Uh, and just said, uh, just got back from the grocery store, and I feel like I've gone skydiving. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I have literally left my house once in the last twenty three days. Um, oh, how do you get your food? Do you grow your own? Yeah, we uh, you know we make bread and we've got chickens um, and actually Walt. Uh, runs a startup for um, farm boxes and stuff. So uh, I just signed up for that. But I saw this coming a while ago and stocked up, did the uh, the Costco prepper run. Um, and I've got like something like 60 pounds of flour or something right now. You can but, take the boy out of Paso, but you can't take Paso out of the boy. <laughs> man, that is so true. We know our doomsday prepping. <laughs> That's right. I was curious in your conversations recently with like policymakers around health healthcare, have you seen any shifts in sort of ideological thinking um, at more kind of the fundamental level of, of how this stuff should be managed? Are there any anything uh, that surprised you from people that are in, you know, 
positions of power that that could be shaping healthcare policy policy? Not really. Um, <laughs> not really. Uh, the the changes. And we're not going to go into the weeds. So there are a lot of changes that are happening, but it's not, it's like wonky stuff, but it's things like, and it, but it is stuff that will all make a difference. And I think, I don't know how much the genie can go back in the bottle, but some things like insurance companies have to authorize before, um, you know, a patient can be moved from one setting to another. Things like that are getting waived the insurance companies aren't requiring to have to, um, you know, put certain restrictions on. Um, there are certain code, like one thing that's kind of big and it's only around testing is like waiving copays and deductibles around testing. Um, but some people are still, so this is the public perception because this is being publicized. Um, but some people, especially the uninsured, are still seeing big bills. And, and this is, I mean, this is where I see some movement in the future, but policymakers definitely don't seem to be thinking about this yet. Um, Job-based insurance as our health system at a time when everyone's losing their jobs. Now the numbers aren't projecting so high that it's making a difference, but it is a question I'm asking. Um, you know, what point is a dip in job insurance, you know, significant enough where people are, you know, really want to make a shift away from job-based insurance. And that isn't, I mean, surprisingly, that it's not just a, that's not just a liberal idea. I mean, Paul Ryan talked about making insurance portable. Um, and it really isn't because employer insurance is so expensive. Um, and it's long been, it's long been the place where both pharmaceutical companies and the hospitals make a lot of money. Um, the entire healthcare system makes a lot of money because it's kind of like it can absorb all these costs and premiums get higher, but people don't really realize because they see it a tax deduction and it's taken out of their wages. They don't really see it when they get laid off and they want to extend their insurance plan, keep their insurance plan. It's all of a sudden what $21,000 for a family who has laid off can afford that. So I do think down the road there will be some effects, but I've seen proposals like, let's just expand Medicare just for COVID coverage. You know, if someone like just have Medicare pay for it, then insurance companies, like all the, all the tons of insurance companies don't have to figure out special policies. And then, but you know, hospitals don't want that because they don't want to be paid the lower Medicare rates. So that's not going to come up in Congress as a serious, I mean, maybe, I mean, the speaker, the speaker of the house, uh, Nancy Pelosi has brought up some things about covering the uninsured, but when you look at how the policies are going to interact, I don't know. Um, but yes, I do think that down the line, there will be some repercussions, um, that policymakers may be forced to address. I'm not hearing a whole lot of difference from the status quo now though. Yeah. And, but, and, but it sounds like the kind of ideological kind of principles are still pretty much in, in place for the most part um, with maybe some subtle, more technocratic shifts. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that as, aside from, you know, insurance companies, uh, you know, changing policies or politicians pushing them to do that, do you think, uh, Susanna, that there will be a sort of 
um, movement once people realize how much their insurance is actually costing them, you know, if they're getting kicked off their plans because they're losing their jobs or, um, or what have you, or just that, you know, for the first time in their lives, younger people are finding themselves very, very sick and having to go to hospitals, whereas they may never have done that before. Do you think that that is going to drive more people towards caring more deeply as voters about uh, universal health care or something like that? I mean, I know a lot of young people already care about that sort of nominally, but do you think that this is a sh- the shift where people actually begin to get much more involved with that as, as their main political concern in ways that it hasn't been before? Um, that's a little outside my expertise because I'm not a good, like, I don't follow shifts and trends so much. I mean, I think it's a blanket. I think you can kind of as a blanket statement, say that younger people are more liberal on healthcare and then they get into corporate jobs and they get their benefits. And you have a Silicon Valley company that gives you in vitro fertilization as part of your health benefits. And like, are you going to give that up for, you know, a very basic healthcare plan? So there are lots of like, I don't know. It, it kind of depends, I think, on how, how things, how things progressed, how many young people get sick and you know, potentially, you know, bankrupted by these hospital bills, what the government does and fails to do. I will say um, what I am watching very closely because I would say Democrats have been staunch defenders of the Affordable Care Act, um, which did leave a lot of people with, you know, high deductibles and cost sharing and all of that. People are talking about, oh, we're really seeing the holes in coverage now. We're really seeing like, oh, you're covered, but not fully covered. You know, at this point, the Affordable Care Act and its essential health benefits, um, which for full coverage, you know, they go far beyond like a single payer healthcare system somewhere else. Like it's very, it's very expensive insurance um, for a reason. Um, so as long as that remains the democratic platform, it's going to be hard to bring that into kind of a bigger discussion of single payer healthcare. Uh, what I will say though, is if, if there's just like a need for like a broad safety net, like why can't we all be on Medicaid and at least be able to go to a doctor and, you know, not be bankrupted. Um, it'll be interesting. I mean, I'm watching as much as anyone else um, because I, very, I do think healthcare will change after this, but I'd say the two big things that I'm watching are, um, you know, our system of high deductibles and co-pays and then our job-based system at a time when the people with the best insurance need get it through their job and what happens when their job goes away. Will what happens next make our policymakers kind of think outside the box uh, from how they've been thinking? I don't know. You know, if you look at Bernie Sanders' website right now, he's obviously trying to stay relevant, which is important for him. Um, you know, and there's been criticism, at least in the you know Twitter universe, which again is not the real universe. But there's you know plenty of people uh, that I've seen complaining that you know Biden isn't doing enough to get out there um, and engage on the issues in the way that Bernie's engaging on the issues. I tend to think that that's because people are just following the wrong accounts or something like that. Like I follow both Biden and Bernie and I've seen both of them out there doing what they can. And obviously, um, and Brandon, you and I were talking about this earlier. They're both really, really old and in the highest risk group for, you know, dying from coronavirus. So I don't personally want either of them out campaigning right now. 
you know? And so I, I think that it's maybe short-sighted for people to complain that they're not doing enough. But I guess one question that I had, um, and this can kind of be for anyone, but I'm wondering how much would really change, even if Bernie did sort of get a little bit more of a boost off of, you know, coronavirus, because more people are are interested now in, in trying to figure out new ways to retain healthcare or new ways to obtain healthcare. You know, if they're scared into feeling like, you know, we're entering this new era where healthcare is going to be much more important than it ever has been. Um, does that really change much for Bernie? Because it seems like older people are the people who are the most affected by this, obviously. And so I feel like older voters from what I've seen are probably more likely to vote for Biden than they are for Bernie. Bernie has been continually kind of talking about how, you know, it's, it's the youth vote that's going to kind of bolster him. And we've seen also continually that those people don't show up uh, to vote in very large numbers. So, I mean, even if we did move more towards like a, everybody needs a better healthcare option, do you think that voters tending to be older would lean more towards Biden or do you think that they would kind of switch to the, the, the Bernie Medicare for all kind of uh, thing, or is it enough just to kind of update the ACA the way that Biden's been talking about? I mean, I have a one, one thought and I think we'll, we'll see where it goes, but my sense is that we don't really know what the debate is going to be yet in, um, you know, come fall. I could see it going two ways. One, it could be about a, a national conversation about healthcare and the other way could be um, the credibility of an administration's ability to respond to a national crisis and its ability to operationalize that and mitigate it or not mitigate it. And you know whether um, it'll be about kind of uh, deeming what the current administration has done as some sort of success. I think right now it'd be tough to make that argument. Um, based on the the early the the early kind of uh, failings to respond and 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 you know achieve readiness, um, or whether it'd be better for a new administration that could come in and make a credible argument to say we can put experts in place to respond to science early, get get out ahead of of trends that we need to get ahead of, and also operationalize um, you know uh, helping the the states at, at scale. Um, but yeah, I mean I. I'd be interested in your perspective as well, Sedena. Well, I think on this, you guys know more than me because I'm here where, um, you know, honestly, as a healthcare reporter, I was wondering how many health Medicare for All stories I'd have to write this year. <laughs> I was not expecting to be very busy. Um, and now the campaign reporters have nothing to do and the healthcare reporters are, you know, swamped. So here right now, the campaigns aren't even the story and I'm not even seeing campaigns much. Um, it's kind of all this all now. And obviously the coming months will tell how much that changes, but um, it's hard to even remember a campaign is going on. Um, so it'd be interesting to know from, I mean, I'm interested you guys out there, are you guys talking about the campaign? Are you guys talking about Bernie versus Biden? So <laughs> I, uh, from my perspective, I don't really think the, this whole situation swings in either Bernie or um, Biden's favor. As far as healthcare goes, I think um, this crisis shows that there does need to be healthcare reform. And I think the health reform on the Democratic side will be healthcare for all and Republican, you know, it will be something else, whether that's cutting the healthcare budget, but it will, it will, it will be reform, I think, regardless over the next four years. 
Um, so I don't think it swings either Bernie or Biden. Well, I think that it just kind of depends on what people are looking for. And I would imagine by November, we are going to be looking for someone who can save the country in the short term over someone who has ideas for how to make things better four years from now after a long transition period. I really don't think Bernie would have been able to deal with this situation because um, I, and I don't think Trump has done a well, like any bit of a good job either, but there is a certain sense of um, capitalism that might save us from this because the private sector is the um, part of our nation that will step up to prevent this from happening again. They'll, they will be the, you know, the group that um, mitigates us. It's not government. It's not, you know, I don't think a, a, a socialist side government would necessarily mitigate this any better. It needs to come from the private sector. And, and that's going to like undoubtedly in, be incentivized by profit. And, you know, that's not necessarily good, but that is the way that you um, motivate people to innovate and motivate people to protect their um, customers. And, you know, if everyone's dying in this country from coronavirus, then that that's bad, right? That's bad for everyone. And I, I don't just, think... I think you've just uh, answered your own question about whether Medicare for All will happen then, because the healthcare industry is very against it. And they're the ones everyone's looking to to save them. Yeah. Do you think that they, do you think that they see that as the, now? Do you think they see now as their moment, like to sort of consult, consolidate or connect, kind of constrict their grip on having the upper hand on saying what happens next because of that, Susanna? I don't know. They're not talking about it right now. Um, it's definitely kind of everyone worried about right now, um, including their profits. Um, but as I said, I mean, from what I've seen all the ads I've heard against Medicare for all, like everything's faded. Um, I'm just not seeing, not seeing the politics around that that I was even three months ago. I have a question, but it kind of morphs into two here. And uh, I just wanted to hear your perspective from, you know, someone in the healthcare industry. Uh, do you really see a lot of um, digital innovation that's going to be able to mitigate coronavirus? And then on top of that, do you see, Kind of, if that does have an effect, do you see a society shift to more digital even after the coronavirus has peaked, in particularly healthcare? Like when you mean when you say digital, um, people can call their doctors instead of going to go visit them in person. Yeah, kind of a variety of stuff from that. You know, like taking your fever and, uh, and uploading it onto you know these websites and do all that kind of cool new digital stuff. Um, so, I mean, I think a big thing that is changing is um, there, there were lots of payment rules about whether a doctor would get paid if you called or Skyped him. Um, and then there were rules like with Medicare, if you weren't like in a very rural area to Skype a specialist, you'd have to go to a different approved doctor's office or Skype. That kind of stuff is getting waived now because obviously they want to keep especially older people in their homes. Um, so that's where I say like incremental stuff is changing quite a bit. Um, I think it'll be hard to, it'll be hard to roll some of that stuff back. Um, so yeah, I can see, I can see more, um, more telehealth happening. I mean, that's kind of a big push right now. It's, you know, let's get more people calling their doctor remotely than going to visit. Um, Obviously, you can't do that with everything, but. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of urgency about that, especially when people don't want you to leave your home if you think you're sick um, with coronavirus. Um, so they want people to call and kind of screen before they decide they're going to go venture out to get the test. Do you think it'll stay that way even after, you know, we start to recover from this? I don't, I mean, I don't know. I, I think, um, as I said, like one thing I will say um, is I think it'll be hard to make it more stringent and the, the rules strict again to, to prevent the payment for that stuff. Um, I still, I'm still unclear because I mean, I don't really know many people who use telemedicine. <laughs> um, so it's unclear to me how much people use it even now. So I'd have to, I'd have to see a lot of like real numbers to think that's going to change. I mean, would you rather call your doctor than go visit in person? I can, that may be a generational shift too. Um, I know for like my grandmother who goes to see her doctor, it's, part of her routine um and um you know i don't know if telemedicine would be as effective for some of the more you know serious things so i th i think it, i think it depends but i do think that um yeah there was already a push especially for people in rural areas uh, where doctors were few and far between there was a push to kind of make this more of a thing um so i i see that continuing if you could change one thing about the way that healthcare is sort of discussed and debated at sort of a national conversation level, um, based on kind of your, your, your understanding of it, like what, what would you change? Um, I would change that, um, you know, everyone always piles on pharma and the insurance companies. Um, but where do a lot of the high bills come from? Come from hospitals and doctors. Um, that's something that Bernie will not address. Um, a lot of Democrats are hesitant to address it. Um, but until you address all the costs and why the costs are there and why um, so many independent doctors are moving into hospitals, you're not going to solve, you're not gonna solve the coverage problem because the cost problem will always be there. Um, and the cost problem will prevent any kind of, you know, broad safety net coverage. Um, so that needs to be, that needs to be talked about. Um, and I just haven't seen that in the more populist conversations at all. That's a pretty interesting question. That raises my my uh, question. I, you don't have to answer this because it's a big question, but you know, do you make it cheaper or do you give people more money to pay for it? I don't know. I feel like that's at the at the end of the day, that's the question that we pay three point six trillion dollars right now. Yeah. Do you feel that you're getting your money's worth from three point six trillion dollars? No. <laughs> no, probably not. Yeah. And add to that, I mean, look at, you know, we have publicly traded, I mean, it's, it's a question about the for-profit healthcare system. I mean, you have publicly traded hospitals, pharmaceuticals, and um, 
and insurance companies and the advocates for that say oh, it proves it pushes efficiency, but it also pushes they're betting against healthcare being cheaper and more affordable because they're betting against an inflated stock price. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you do have to you do have to deal with that, and you have um, not for profit CEOs of both hospitals and insurance companies making 10 to $15 million a year. And that's the not for profits. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of money in the system, not to mention the armies of consultants, the armies of healthcare lawyers who are here in DC and expensive law firms. I mean, you have a lot that's propping up the system as it is. Um, so, $3.6 trillion. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's, I don't, I don't, I don't know how you start taking some of that money out. And every time there's a big push to do it, um, there's actually a big bipartisan push last year by senators, um, Lamar Alexander, um, uh, Tennessee is a Republican and Patty Murray, um, who's a Democrat of Washington. They did a very, I mean, many experts who really looked at this bill and they didn't think it had a good chance of passing because it was very wonky. Um, but it did a very serious, sober look. And I went to every single one of their hearings that went on over the course of a year um, where they really looked at a lot of issues from antitrust with hospital systems to anti-competitive behavior to, you know, basic things like if you have workplace insurance and you're um, the insurance company and, you know, covering you, um, you know, gets a really good deal, negotiates, because there are no real prices in healthcare, right? It's all negotiated. And they all say, oh, that's the private market. You can't, you know, interfere with the negotiations. But the, the problem is, is then there's no real price. So everything gets you know, inflated many times if, depending on who has the negotiating power. So there are clauses that are in place, like a, a plan doesn't have to tell your company who's paying for the healthcare, most of it, or you, what they're actually paying for your hospital bill. So the hospital bill can come and you don't know, you know, what they paid and the insurance company can, you know, collect the balance of, of what they tell you that they paid the hospital and what they actually pay. That's currently Whoa. illegal. So that was going to be illegal on the bill. You know who the two people were, the two Democrats who voted against that package were? Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. For various reasons, like it didn't go far enough, but these are like, so these were such important reforms. And it'll probably now never get to the Senate floor. Uh, maybe in 10 years it will. Um, but it did really threaten it's these wonky things that really threaten some really bad industry practices that make everything expensive. Um, but you can't get, you know, you can't get America excited about them because there's no catchy phrase. Um, and because of that, you can't get the politicians to feel any kind of pressure from the public while they're getting pressure from the lobbyists who are giving them money. Do you think that? Bernie Sanders is a working class hero, or do you think that Bernie Sanders is a grumpy old asshole? 
I cannot say anything because I'm a reporter and I'm nonpartisan. <laughs> um, Point taken. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Susanna Luthi of Politico, for uh, hanging out and talking to us and answering our um, our questions, regardless of how dumb they are. Uh, we very much appreciate it. It was good to talk to you. Good thank to talk you. to Thanks, you. Susanna. Have fun, guys. Thanks. See you later. Bye. All right, boys. That was fun. Walt, what's going on with the markets this week? Well, so far this week, and um, we really started this leveling last week where we started to see some stabilization within the markets. Um, really, we can look at the last two months and say that a lot of that big drop would be considered price discovery. So the market was trying to really find where, where the where the real value was. And I think um, so far we found that kind of that level, at least within, you know, we've been trading up and down between a certain 5%. So volatility has gone down a lot in the last week. And for the broad market, that that's pretty good. And we haven't seen any big drops. Uh, we haven't seen a big gain uh, in, in an intraday gain. Last week was one of the best days in the market since somewhere in the 1930s, which is, a, which is really good um, for the economy. I think that was a lot of recovering from conditions that would be considered oversold. So there was very few sellers left in the market. So you had a lot of um, kind of young, young people's mar money still in the market and they weren't going to sell. And that was, that was met, right? We, we, we found a little bottom there. And it didn't seem like many more people would sell. Uh, today we had a four four percent, around four percent intraday move. We were green this morning, but then we closed down. I think three percent in the red, which you know is kind of expected during a pandemic. It's not twelve percent down, which is good. Um, I would say that these little five percent moves are kind of expected over the next couple of weeks. As far as a big drop coming. I don't foresee one, but you never know. I think the blunt news of 100 to 200,000 people dying would have caused a big drop if something was going to make the market drop, uh, but it didn't. So I, I think that's really interesting. Um, but again, we have to wait for some real numbers. Companies are going to start reporting, I think, in about a month from this quarter, which will be really interesting. And well, uh, just earlier today, we started to hear some rumblings about, uh, I was watching in the press conference earlier, um, about some sort of work happening on infrastructure. Uh, Trump was, was talking about now that the interest rates are, you know, at 0%, we should be taking out, uh, we should be borrowing against that and investing in, I think he's floated like a, what, a hundred, a $1 trillion infrastructure structure package or $2 trillion Something like that. Um, I may be mixing up my numbers, but yeah, too. How do you how how do you see the market responding to uh, something like that? Assuming it actually gets taken up as actual like legislation in some way, shape, or form. Well, yeah. So I saw that tweet this morning from Trump too, and I was kind of confused because it's very much so off topic and what we're going through. I don't. I can't speak to what he's thinking about, but there's a couple angles there. There's, there's, there are some good things about that idea. 
Um, there, there is one potential that he's just like, okay, um, capital is cheap. We should do this now. Um, we should spend money because money is free. Uh, it's not necessarily free. The zero percent isn't isn't really true. You, we are not at a zero percent interest rate. We are zero to point two five percent. So there will not at this point money in the U.S. capital is not free. Um, we're not at zero percent. We're in that range somewhere, and particularly in bonds, which would be the way that this debt is offered. It would not be exactly at zero percent. So that's not correct. But then jumping off that, he could be playing something off of, you know, the Great Depression, where one of the things that really saved the country was, uh, you know, infrastructure stimulation. So you you spend a bunch of money in the U.S. It's it's called Keynesian Keynesian economics, which is debt financed growth. And so if you can finance um, employment, finance uh, investment, and and do all these things to to stimulate the economy, you can actually um, use debt to back that. There are some downsides, which would be devaluing your currency, because if you take on a bunch of debt at 0%, that would devalue your currency, because in theory, there's more circulation of, of that currency in within the United States and globally. Um, and that brings up the question of how does that work with China, because China seems to be back on their feet. They have... Um, they've they've been working on generating capital and they've been investing domestically a lot. And, you know, if our government does offer a $2 trillion, $2 trillion in debt, does China come in and buy that and own a larger stake in our debt? Uh, that's very possible. It could be interesting to see that play out. Um, Trump is also trying, in some ways, I think he is trying to keep up with um, Xi Jinping, who's the president of China. And Xi Jinping, like four years ago, I think, announced uh, the biggest infrastructure bill in the world, which is called the Silk Road Initiative. And that is to connect all of southeastern um, Asia and eastern Europe. And it is a really interesting um, infrastructure project as far as global economics and, and everything, because they are colonizing in a lot of ways with capital. So they're going out and offering loans to countries to build their own infrastructure. And, and those countries will eventually default on those loans. Then China owns, owns um, that infrastructure. But all, all that set aside, I think Trump is feeling pressure to catch up to, ch to China because we are actively in negotiations with them for a phase two trade deal. And in general, I think the market would see a infrastructure bill as a stimulant, which would be good. And, in a lot of ways, if the dollar is driven down in value, that is good for American companies because that uh, creates more e-commerce and we can actually um, you know, basically sell more iPhones globally if our dollar is cheaper. Handing them out like Oprah? <laughs> Obama know. phones. <laughs> you get an iPhone. You get an iPhone. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about Infrastructure Week. I don't know about you guys. I've been waiting a long time for Infrastructure Week, so... <laughs> We've all been waiting for it. They've been trying to do infrastructure week, I think, since week two wow. of the administration. And every week it's an infrastructure week until it isn't. His first day of the so, union, I remember him talking. So he's like, I'm going to get it done next week. <laughs> yeah. No, well, you know, he's a builder. He'll, he'll figure it out. Um, I, th I think the one the one thing that I was going to say as a closer that I'm just going to be kind of keeping my eye on, um, especially in the middle of this um, 
emergent health crisis we're under, the fact that all of the plausible and non-plausible candidates still in this race uh, are of a, of, a, of a higher age, age bracket, right? Um, we're going to eventually see some VP picks announced. Um, you know, we'll also have kind of a question of, you know, whether um, uh, Mike Pence will be recast in, you know, the, the White House season two, um, or whether uh, Trump will pick somebody else. But these VP, VP picks actually matter probably more than any other VP picks that I can think of in, in, in past memory, just because of the, the real possibility that they might actually become president at some point if, if you know, the elected president becomes incapacitated in some way. Um, I'll be interested to see how they're vetted, if there's more scrutiny over them, and you know, how, much, how those picks um, play into a larger strategy for, for the different candidates. Um, so are they looking to pick somebody who can step in on the job on day one? And that's kind of the, the, big, the big play. Um, are they still going the more traditional route of picking an individual who can um, represent a, a particular swing state that of, of value? Um, and will they be riding a wave of kind of popularity, right? So the, the, the governor of Michigan is pretty popular right now. I think a couple months ago, um, you would have seen uh, Kamala Harris much, you know, pretty highly rated as, as a potential pick. I think that's still possible, but I'll be interested to see um, how that gets rolled out and when. Yeah, you know, uh, Sanders Gabbard. <laughs> Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that on the next pod, actually. Like, we can uh, talk about who we think the pick would be and why, and we can talk about different strategies that come into play with that, because I think that maybe that will refocus us a little bit on uh, the election, which would be kind of cool. In the meantime, I think a, a good game to play while you wait for our next pod is one that Brandon and I play uh, quite often, which is uh, pick your dream team, president, vice president. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Avenatti Scaramucci 2020. <laughs> All right. Come up with the best ones. We'll talk about it next time. Well, I'll have a list ready for next time. My top 10. Yeah. Perfect. Brandon Walt 2020. No, there wait. Williamson Palin 2020. <laughs> Williamson, brilliant beaming light of self actualization 2020.